When you read through the Scriptures, particularly when you come to a passage like Hebrews 11, where you read about all these mighty heroes of faith, sometimes I find it can have the wrong effect on me. I can look at them and say, Wow, I could never have faith like Elijah. I could never do what Moses did or what Noah did. And then you come into the New Testament and read about the apostles in the book of Acts and the things they did. It's like, wow, these were like supermen of faith. I could never come anywhere close to that. And rather than producing encouragement, it can actually discourage us. Does does anybody know what I'm talking about here? It's like, man, I'm so far away from that, I don't think I fit into this thing. But here's what I want to share with you. These great men and women of God that we sometimes, I think mistakenly, put up on a pedestal, the Scripture reminds us that even a mighty man like Elijah is a man just like us. James 5.17 says, Elijah was a man just like us. King James says, subject to like passions as we are. Now that's contrary to the way we think sometimes. We think, man, Elijah, he was some kind of a super dude. You just, you know, you couldn't discourage him, you couldn't make him afraid or anything. No, no, no. If you read your Bible, you'll find out he got very afraid. He was just like us. And if you go down Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, every one of those people was just like us. Subject to all the same passions, weaknesses, temptations, and all the rest. And so... We're going to be looking at one character in particular today, Abraham. And I'm kind of giving this as a backdrop. That sometimes we look at Abraham like, Father of faith, friend of God. God is not even ashamed to use him in his name. God of Abraham. You ever thought about that? Can you imagine for all eternity... God saying, I am the God of Nigel. Wait, wait, wait. Lord, you don't really know who I am. You don't want to be that closely associated with me. Yes, I do. I am the God of Norman. Hold on, Lord. We need to have a discussion about this because I don't know if you want to put your name on that. The Bible says God is not ashamed to be Abraham's God. And yet, when we go through this list in Hebrews 11, these were flawed, flawed, flawed people. Noah, wow, built an ark. Right? You know what happened right after the ark? He got drunk. And you know what happened after he got drunk? Something really bad happened that gave rise to all of the enemy nations that came against Israel in the promised land. A curse was pronounced upon 
Canaan, and that's where all these enemies came from. So be careful when you put these people up on a pedestal. That's why after Hebrews 11 finishes in chapter 12, it says, Now, having all these witnesses around us, don't fix your eyes on Abraham. Don't fix your eyes on Noah. Don't fix your eyes on Moses. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Listen carefully. The author and finisher, or the NIV says, perfecter of our faith. Author and perfecter of our faith. More about that a little later. We're going to come back to that thought. But I want you to begin with me in the book of Romans, chapter 4, and we're actually going to read the whole chapter. So you can at least check off one chapter today in your Bible reading record if you do that. And I don't know about you, but up until recently, when I would read this chapter, I have to be honest with you, I thought, I'm nowhere close to this dude. He's got an unwavering faith. Sometimes mine is like this. He doesn't seem to have any doubts. Sometimes i got huge doubts. He seems to just be fully persuaded that whatever God says, it's going to come to pass. And I would like to be that way, but honestly, I'm not. And sometimes in my trials, in my battles, in my weaknesses, I'm like, Lord, where are you? What's happening? This thing isn't working the way it's supposed to. So let's read this first and see if you feel the same way about this man, Abraham, from verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. Let's pause. Keep that up. If you're familiar with the book of Romans, Paul is building a case here, which he started in the previous chapter, for one of the great themes of redemption. It's called justification by faith. It's a fancy word. To justify means to make or to declare righteous. And we just read something mind-blowing here. Paul is talking to us about a God who justifies the wicked. Wait, that's all wrong. That's contrary to everything the Bible teaches, right? If you're right, you're right. If you're wrong, you're wrong. If you're right, you go to heaven. If you're wrong, you go to hell. And Paul comes along and says, I'm going to tell you some really good news. If you're wicked, you can be justified. You can be made righteous. 
You can be declared right before God. So the, the God he's talking about here is this God. The God who justifies the wicked by faith. And he's using Abraham as an example of one who was justified not by what he did, but by what he believed. And it's actually quoted right here. His faith is credited as righteousness. From verse 6. David says the same thing. When he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Apart from works. Verse 7. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Do you realize that there is no other religion on the face of the earth? And i I got to be careful because I don't normally like to refer to Christianity as a religion. It's more than a religion. It's, it's a relationship. It's a life. But to make my point, there is no other religion on the face of the earth that offers free forgiveness for all sin. Check them out. They all have rules and regulations, but not a one of them preaches week in and week out, no matter what you've done, there's a God who can justify the wicked, and He can pardon all of your transgressions. I think, and God's been speaking to me personally about this, I think that means we should emphasize what's different about our religion more rather than trying to be like all the others and give long lists of do's and don'ts and rules and regulations and condemnations and all of that. There's a time and a place for that. But let us never forget the heart and soul of what makes Christianity unique. It's forgiveness of sin. It's that God can take an unclean sinner, clean him up, and declare him the righteousness of God in Christ. That is mind-blowing. And he goes on in verse 8, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. If you know what it is to have your sins forgiven, you know what a blessedness that is. Because you can't get rid of them. You can't get rid of your own sins. You can't get rid of the guilt. You can't get rid of that constant torment inside for what you've done. But when God forgives you, you're blessed. Verse 9, is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. And this is a very important question. It's a fine point, but it's very important. Under what circumstances was it credited? 
Was it after he was circumcised? Now, circumcision is a religious act. It's something you did as a Jewish believer. Was he made righteous before or after? It was not after, but before. Genesis 15 is where it says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. Genesis 17 is when God speaks to him about circumcision. In other words, long before Abraham had a chance to do anything, God says, you're righteous already. Now, does that mean the circumcision was unnecessary? Oh, not at all. Does that mean... Because we're justified by faith, we can live like devils and shoot and kill and get drunk and commit adultery? Absolutely not. If you're justified by faith, you're changed and you begin to live differently and you begin to do works of righteousness, not to make yourself right with God. You're already right. You're already right. So it was before circumcision that he was declared righteous. Not after. Verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to him. And he is also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Verse 13, It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value. And the promise is worthless. Because law brings wrath, and where there is no law is no transgression. Verse 16, listen to this one very carefully. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace, and may be guaranteed, not just Abraham, guaranteed to all I haven't done this in a while. What's all mean? To all Abraham's offspring. Raise your hand if you're an offspring of Abraham. Some of you aren't sure what you are. We'll try to help you later. How many of you like guarantees? I love it when you can buy something with a real guarantee. Now, you've you got to read the fine print, because sometimes the fine print says, well, it's only on Saturday, it's not good any other day of the week, and if you're 50 years or older, it's no good, and if you live in Montgomery County, it's no good. But I like guarantees. This is guaranteed. The promise is guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, but it can only come one way. It comes by faith so that it may be by grace, not by works. Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith 
of Abraham. He is the father of us all. Raise your hand if Abraham's your father. Good. Next verse. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Let's take a breather. Abraham is a beautiful picture of what God wants to do in your life and mine through Jesus Christ. All have sinned, come short of the glory of God. We're all wicked. We're all enemies of God. We're all rebels and we're all sinners from birth. We need something absolutely supernatural to happen. We need to be declared righteous and all of our sins forgiven. We can't do that by any kind of religion. You can fast, pray, lay on a bed of nails, do any kind of religious contortion you want to try. It won't deal with your sins. That's why whenever we take communion, I like to remind us, nothing, nothing, nothing but the blood of Jesus can wash away our sins. And so that sacrifice on the cross is the center of our faith. Our faith in Jesus Christ and His sacrifice on the cross is the only way to be forgiven. That's why Christianity is unique among all the other religions. And if you have a friend who's a Buddhist or a Muslim or Hindu or whatever, you might want to very nicely present that to them one day. Does your religion offer you forgiveness of all of your sins? Does it declare you to be righteous without you doing anything? If they're honest, they'll have to tell you no. Well, this one does. The free gift of forgiveness. The free gift of righteousness. It wasn't cheap. It was very costly. It cost God the blood and the very life of His beloved Son. But He did it knowing that through faith, we, like Abraham, could be declared righteous. We're justified not by what we do, but the one in whom we believe. Now, all that was introductory. Let's get to the real meat of the message, and that's what remains in Romans 4. Let's pick it up from verse 18. Against all hope, you ever been there? I'm not talking about a bad day or your coffee isn't hot. I'm talking about all hope is gone. Abraham came to no more hope. Particularly concerning the central promise that God made to him, I'm going to make you a father of nations. Can't even have one kid way past the age of bearing children. Sarah the wife, way past being able to bear any children. No more hope. So when all hope is gone, what did Abraham do? He in hope believed. That makes no sense at all. <laughs> all hope is gone and you're still hoping. Are you crazy or what? 
And this is the part I, I mentioned to you. I read this and I'm like, whoa, I, I can't even really identify with this guy. I, I don't know what kind of a faith he had, but when all hope is gone for me, I'm hopeless. But against all hope, he believed, and so he became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Now, from verse 19, listen to this very carefully. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. Since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Everything's dead. Hopeless and dead. But, <coughs> this, go back please. This says, without weakening in his faith. That challenges me. And it gets, it gets even better. Look at verse 20. Yet he did not waver. No weakening, no wavering at all in this man. He did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully, not just a little bit, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what He had promised. This is why it was credited to Him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to Him, were written not for Him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in Him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Now, if you ponder these verses, <clears throat> you're tempted to fall into the trap I mentioned earlier of thinking, wow, Abraham's some kind of a superman. He just never questions, he never doubts, he never wavers, he's like an oak tree just standing firm on the promises of God, He's absolutely sure whatever God said, it's going to come to pass, even though he's been waiting 25 years now for the promise. Are you all hearing me? Some of us in here have been waiting not days, weeks, or months. We've been waiting years for things that we've trusted God for we fasted for, we've prayed over, and still nothing seems to be happening. All hope seems to be gone. And then I read these verses and I'm like, wow, I can't really identify with this man Abraham because I, I don't know what that is. I get weak in my faith sometimes. I waver sometimes. I, I have some doubts. And sometimes I have conversations with God. Lord, what's wrong here? How long? Why? How? What? When? And then I have another question that arises. Did Paul, who wrote these words... Did he know the same Abraham I read about in Genesis? Because we're going to go there in a minute. 
And the Abraham we're going to read about in Genesis doesn't seem to be quite like this. Paul seems to have deliberately picked out the highlights. You know what I mean? Sometimes in a sports game, they just pick out the highlights, all the good plays. They don't show all the bad ones. There were some bad ones too, but they don't make it into the highlights. These are the highlights of Abraham. And like I said, sometimes we can look at those highlights and think, I don't, I'm not like that all the time. Um, and so, recently as I was reading over this, I was like, how do we reconcile Romans 4 with the book of Genesis? Because I had just finished reading the book of Genesis, and this really started this thing inside of me to go back and look at Abraham's life more carefully. Now, i got to be very careful with what I'm going to do here. I believe I can quickly take you, and you're going to have to do some homework on your own to go back and look at the Scriptures more carefully in the book of Genesis, but I believe I can show you at least six lapses in faith in Abraham's life. Some of them very grievous, very serious. You can't miss them. We're still dealing with the consequences in the world today for some of those lapses. And my purpose today is to encourage us, but it's not to give license to us, well, Abraham messed up, I'm going to keep messing up, I guess I'm never going to get any better. That is not my purpose. It's not to encourage us to go on making excuses for our weak faith, for our wavering faith. It's to encourage you that God meets us where we are. He's not going to leave us where we are. And He is going to take us finally so that the story of your life and my life is going to sound like Romans 4. Okay? Alright. Lapse number one. By the way, I didn't plan this, but this morning as I was going back over my notes, the number six is one shy of seven, which is the number of perfection. So this is the imperfections of Abraham's faith. The first one comes right at the beginning. Genesis 12, verse 1. What is often referred to as Abraham's call, but maybe not. How many of you liked grammar? English grammar when you took it in school. Everybody loved grammar? We got one hand up. What is wrong with you? <laughs> but here's where grammar is important. Especially when you're reading the Scriptures. Sometimes, just whether it's past tense, present tense, or future tense, makes a big, big difference. Listen carefully. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. The Lord had said. Let me supply a word, and I don't think I'm really changing the meaning of it. The Lord had already said. So this is not the call. This is 
finally, Abraham responding to a call that had come earlier. And so this first lapse, I would call it compromise and partial obedience. And again, if you read Hebrews 11, Abraham sounds like a superman. It says, by faith, Abraham went out not knowing where he was going. It, It almost leads you to believe that the minute he heard God's voice, there was this instantaneous and total obedience. No. Absolutely not. Let's go back a few verses to Genesis 11.31. And some important details are given here. Terah, that's Abraham's father, Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But, whenever you're reading your Bible and you hit that word but, pause, and ask the Holy Spirit to show you what's going on here. Why the but? Now, we have to read between the lines a little bit here, and we're not trying to make up the Scriptures for God, but it seems pretty obvious from 12.1 where we started, it specifically says there, the Lord had said to Abram, not to his father, Not to the whole family. God had originally spoken to Abram. But he must have shared that with the family. And I don't know, maybe one day he said, Dad, nice knowing you, but God has called me to leave family, home, country, and everything, and go out. I don't know exactly where I'm going yet, but I'm going by faith. See you all later. And dad starts, you know, having a big pity party. Oh, come on, Abram, in my old age, you can't leave me like that. You can't leave all your family. Let's all go together. We'll all go. And so, Terah takes Abraham, his, his son Haran, his grandson Lot, Sarah, and together... They set out for Canaan. But they didn't make it to Canaan. Why were they going to Canaan? Because that's what God had told Abram. Go to Canaan. But like us, very often, we have good intentions, but we don't quite get where we were supposed to go. We find a comfortable spot midway, and we say, this is good enough. It's called compromise. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. If you read Bible history books about this, Haran was a place filled with idols. And it must have had a great attachment to Abram's father, because he named one of his sons Haran. 
Lot's father is Haran. So there must have been some special attachment to this place that they stopped there, and it doesn't say they took a couple days to rest. They settled there. You know, in our faith journey, we can start off on fire, and then we start to settle for things. We start to go halfway. We start to compromise. We, we've, we've, we're not where we used to be. We're not really where we're supposed to be, but at least we've come someplace. Let's settle here for a while. Keep going, next verse. Terah lived 205 years. We're not sure exactly how many years that took place in Haran. But he died in Haran. Huh. Do you see the connection? As long as Daddy was alive, they were stuck in Haran. They weren't going any further. Finally, Terah dies. Next verse, let's look at 12.1 again. The Lord had said already in the past, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. There's still some more compromise that's going to take place. Look at the next verses. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left. Say it with me. So Abram left. As the Lord had told him. Now we're finally obeying. Took a little time. Is that familiar to anyone else in here besides me? Oh, I guess all of you have just jumped out there with perfect obedience when God tells you to do something. God says jump in the water and you go... Let me think about it a couple months. I've got to fast and pray 40 days. Let me, in a multitude of counselors, let me talk to 50 or 70 pastors, and then I'll decide whether I'm going to do this or not. And we dawdle, and we waste time, and we stall. Meanwhile, God is patient. But here's what I'm seeing in this story. God is patient, but He will get you where you're supposed to go. He will. In the end, He will finish what He started in your life. And He has amazing ways of doing that. So now, Abraham left as the Lord had told him. Uh Uh-oh. And Lot went with him. What had God told him? Leave your country, leave your father's household, and your people. Lot ain't supposed to be here. But here comes Lot 
Well, Lord, you know, at least we're finally moving out, but I can't say goodbye to Lot, so let's bring him along. So Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. Next verse. He took his wife Sarah, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Okay, good. Again, lesson number one, even when we're slow, even when we make compromises, even when we don't fully obey the Lord, God is patient. He's gracious. He's long-suffering. But that doesn't mean He just looks the other way and says, okay, I guess Abram's going to stay in Haran for the rest of his life. Oh, no, no. God will deal with circumstances to get you and me moving. He will. He'll do what He has to do to move us from point A to point B. Now, in the same chapter, we see something else interesting. And this second lapse I have called... Are you ready for this? Doesn't sound like Romans 4, but we'll see all of it. Lying, fear, and unbelief. Is this the same Abraham? Lying, fear, and unbelief. Let's pick it up in verse 10. Genesis 12, verse 10. Now, there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. Uh-oh. Red flag. Who told him to go to Egypt? God didn't. And later in the life of his son Isaac, there was a famine, and God specifically showed up to Isaac and said, Don't go to Egypt. Don't go down there. I can take care of you right here. So, because of the famine, Abram must have thought, i got to take matters into my own hands. they got better jobs in Egypt, more food there. Let's make a move. He never asked God. God never spoke to him. And this is where you and I can get into some big messes. We start making decisions without calling on God, and those decisions are made in unbelief, in fear. It gets worse. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Oh, this is a great plan. I love this stuff. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman, and when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. It's a married woman. Now in Pharaoh's palace because of the folly of Abraham. He treated Abram well for her sake. Man, this is working out good. Not only was my life spared, I'm 
I'm prospering down here. Treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants and maid servants, and camels. But, there it is again. Pause. Something's going on here. Abraham's plan seems to really be working. But, but, but the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So, Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. This is Abraham who never wavers in faith. Fully persuaded that God can perform all of His promises. Are you kidding me? This is a ridiculous, insane plan that Abraham hatches. Alright, you are my half-sister, so let's just take it a step further. And tell them you're my sister. Then that will save my life. You know, did it ever dawn on Abraham what might happen? Inside the palace to his own wife? Good grief! This was crazy! Put her in a very compromising and dangerous position. Why? To save his own skin. That's the only reason. But, again, the Lord intervened. First time He intervened by removing Terah so that Abraham can move on with the plan of God in his life. Now, God inflicts the whole household of Pharaoh with diseases. And this, by the way, this is actually a beautiful picture of what would later happen with Israel down in Egypt. And they're finally thrown out by the Egyptians after all the plagues and all the diseases were brought upon Egypt. And when you read this passage, who seems more righteous, Pharaoh or Abram? Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the upright one. Abram is some kind of a crooked shyster manipulating and hatching this plan, lying about his wife, to save his own neck. You know, when I read these stories about Noah and Abraham and Jacob and David and on and on and on, they give me hope. Really, they do. And I want to caution you, as I mentioned earlier, this is not to make excuses for our sins and say, oh, now you can go lie and cheat and do all this. Absolutely not. That's not the purpose of this message. But it's to show that God meets us where we are. And some of us have done even 
dumber things than this. In our own human wisdom, lying and conniving, and we got our own plan working here, and God in His mercy busts it up. Thank God for busting up all of our silly plans. Thank God. The lesson here is, our life is in God's hands. We don't have to lie. We don't have to cheat. We don't have to do anything. He will protect us. And you know, there's a verse that I've come to love in the book of Proverbs. It says, it's better to be poor than a liar. Think about that. It's better to be poor than a liar. In other words, keep your integrity and let God fight for your life. But don't lie to try to get ahead or protect yourself or anything of that nature. Alright, lapse number three. Remember Lot? Lot was supposed to be separated from Abraham in the beginning, but he wasn't. So what, God just decided, eh, I didn't really mean what I said, that wasn't that important. We'll, we'll work it out, Lot will fit in with the plan. Oh no. Lot will not fit in with the plan, and again, God is going to intervene and deal with the consequences of Abraham's compromise. Sometimes our compromises take years to get fixed. That's the painful part about it. But God will deal with them. God will step in as He did in this case. Genesis 13. <clears throat> so Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had. And Lot went with him. Skip down to verse 5. Now, Lot seems to be the central figure here in this part of the story. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, my own parenthesis, he wasn't supposed to be, but he is, also had flocks and herds <clears throat> and tents. Here's where God comes in. But, Hmm, that word keeps showing up in these stories. Abraham's going on with his plans, with his little compromises, but the land could not support them while they stayed together. God is starting to arrange some circumstances here. Sometimes we fight against circumstances without realizing God is the one engineering them. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able. Say, not able. This thing has reached critical mass now. They can't stay together anymore. They're not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herdsmen and the herdsmen of Lot, the Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abram said to Lot, 
Let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. Do you hear those words? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked up and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt toward Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. Are you starting to realize why from the beginning God wanted Lot separated from Abraham? And we'll learn even more disturbing things that happen in Lot's life later on. But he gravitates toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward wickedness, toward sin, toward perversion. And notice the next verse. The Lord said to Abram, after, say after, after Lot had parted from him. As I was meditating on this this morning, I kind of imagined God just waiting. You ever had something to say, but you're waiting for another person to leave so you can speak what you need to speak to that individual? He's just waiting, waiting, waiting. For years now, waiting for Lot to be out of the picture. Once they part company, God immediately starts speaking. The Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had parted from him, lift up your eyes from where you are and look north and south, east and west. And if you read the rest of it, he gives him a full panoramic view of the promised land. He couldn't see that as long as Lot was with him. The lesson here, there are certain people that don't belong in your life. That sounds harsh. There are certain people that will hinder you from fulfilling your destiny, your purpose, and your plan. And God will speak to you, and God will even arrange circumstances to remove them. There are certain other people that need to be in your life. And God will bring those people, He will join you to those people, and they will assist you, encourage you, and help you along your way in fulfilling God's plan and destiny for your life. Lot was a hindrance to what God wanted to do with Abraham. And they finally part company. Lapse number four. Now this is going to sound like heresy, but here it comes again. Unbelief and relying on the flesh. Abraham? Unbelief? Oh yeah, you better believe it. Because now we come to the central part of Abraham's story. 
His name is Ishmael. Genesis 16, let's read from verse 1 to 5. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She couldn't. She couldn't bear children. It was impossible. Had borne him no children, but, oh my Lord. That's a scary word. But, she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. Now Sarah's got a plan. A real doozy. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Hands up if you think that sounds insane. No way, wife! I can't do anything crazy like that! Are you kidding me? God told us He's going to give us children. We need to wait on the Lord. We need to stand firm in faith. We're not going to do anything ridiculous like that. Abraham agreed. Are you kidding me? Abraham agreed. Great plan, wife. That's great. You're getting smarter all the time. You're coming up with really good ideas now. Let's do it. Abraham agreed to what Sarah said. Next verse. So after Abraham had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. To be his wife. Next verse. He slept with Hagar. She conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise Sarah, her mistress. This is where it gets really good. I love this. Then Sarah said to Abraham, You are responsible for this wrong. Time out! Whose plan was this? Isn't it amazing how the tables turn? Wait, you're responsible for the wrong I am suffering? I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord... Oh, we're going to bring the Lord into this one now. May the Lord judge between you and me. Lady, I'd be very careful about asking the Lord to bring judgment right now. Real careful. Drop down to 11. The angel of the Lord said to Hagar, You are now with child, and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. Next verse. 
He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. We're dealing with it today, folks. Today. This is serious stuff. When you make these crazy decisions and choices, they can have long, long, long-term consequences. What an insane plan. But, and don't raise your hands, but does it sound a little bit familiar to some things you and I have done in our lives? And after you're done, it's like, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? Well, you probably weren't thinking. That's the problem. I could spend hours just on this part of this, but we've got to move on to complete it. But if you go to Galatians 4, Paul expands this whole thing about Ishmael and Isaac, one born of a slave woman, one born of a free woman, one representing the Old Covenant, which brings death and bondage. One representing the New Covenant, that brings life and freedom. And here's the problem. Paul says, to this day, it's not just history, to this day, the son born of the flesh, that's Ishmael, born in the ordinary way, always persecutes the son born by the Spirit. There's this conflict between flesh and spirit. What did Abraham do here? What did Sarah do? They trusted in their own flesh. And it went something like this. And this might make it sound a little bit more relevant to your case and mine. Well, God isn't doing anything. We've been praying for ten years now and nothing's happened. God's not moving, so we need to take matters into our own hands now. Sound familiar? Lord, you're not doing anything, so I'm going to take charge now. Oh boy, look out. Look out. That's when real big messes take place. They weren't waiting on the Lord. They weren't trusting in the Lord. They were doing what seemed like a pretty good plan to them. The Bible says be careful with plans that seem right. Because they end up in death. There's a way that seems right unto a man and it ends in death, destruction, and devastating consequences. Alright, lapse number five. You're not going to believe this is talking about Abraham, but it is. Wavering, doubting, questioning, and laughing. Genesis 15, verses 1 to 8. I'm going to move quickly now. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid. Now, why is God telling him, do not be afraid? He must have been afraid. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. What's that first word? Oh, my Lord. But... Abram said. Now see if this sounds like faith to you or doubting, questioning, and wavering. 
God just said, don't be afraid, man. I am with you. I am for you. I am your shield. But, and he even adds, Sovereign Lord, O Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus? Let me give you my own paraphrase. Lord, you keep telling me all these wonderful things, but nothing's happening. I don't have any kids. What can you give me since you haven't even fulfilled the promise? I remain childless. Sounds a little different from Romans 4, doesn't it? Fully persuaded, never wavering, never doubting. It gets better. Next verse. Abram said, you have given me no children. Paraphrase, you haven't been faithful to your promise. So a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the heavens, count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be, Abraham. Abraham believed the Lord. This is the verse Paul quoted in Romans 4. Abraham believed the Lord and he, that's God, credited it to him as righteousness. Oh, glad we cleared up all those doubts. Now Abraham's a true believer, right? Next verse. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. Oh, hallelujah. I thank you, Lord. I trust you. I believe unswervingly in your promises. What's the first word? <laughs> but Abram said, Oh, sovereign Lord. He got that part right. How can I know? that I will gain possession of it. Paraphrase, I don't believe you, Lord. How, how can I know? What assurance do I have that your word is true, that I can trust your promise? On to chapter 17. We're still on this fifth it's actually a series of lapses, but I lump them all together under this heading. Wavering, doubting, questioning, and even laughing at God. 17 from verse 15. God also said to Abraham, you notice God talks to this man a lot. God also said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name now will be Sarah. Okay? I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. Give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Oh, this is getting better now. 
Abraham's going to be father of nations, Sarah's going to be mother of nations, and neither of them can have even one kid. Kings of people will come from her. And Abraham falls down, oh, hallelujah, I believe you, Lord, I praise you. I give you glory for your faithful promise. Next verse. Abraham fell face down, and he laughed. What kind of laugh was this? <coughs> yeah, right. Yeah, sure. Uh-huh. That's a good joke, Lord. Got any more? He fell face down and laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of ninety? He laughed in total disbelief. Now, in the next chapter, I'm not going to read this, Sarah does the same thing. <laughs> She's inside the tent when the word, word of the Lord is again repeated that Sarah, in her old age, will have a son. What did Sarah do? She laughed. And the angels heard her laughing inside the tent. And then they asked, What's she laughing about in there? It says Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, Yes, you did laugh. Here's the lesson on lapse number five. Your situation, my situation, Abraham's situation, Sarah's situation may seem so ridiculously impossible that when we consider the promise of God, we laugh. It's like, whatever. That's impossible. Abraham laughed. Sarah laughed. And a year later, guess who was laughing? God. God got the last laugh. And you know what Isaac means? Laughter. Laughter. The son of promise, a miracle baby, is named Laughter. Okay, we can run through laps six very quickly because it's become very familiar now. Lapse number six is called lying part two. How many of you have ever done something stupid once, but you learned from your mistake and you never did it again? Now, I'm not even going to ask you to raise your hand on my next question. How many of you have done something really stupid and you even did it again later on? Here we go. Genesis 20. From verse 1, Abram moved on. He stayed in Gerar. And there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, She is my sister. Are you kidding me? We're going to do this one again? <laughs> yeah, she is my sister. Then Abimelech, the king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. What's the first word there? But God. I love it. 
God is just continually on this man's case. Not in a bad way. He's patient. He, like a dog on a leash, he gives him a little bit of rope. Not too much, but he gives him a little. And then, he yanks it. And that's when the but comes. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he, meaning Abraham, did he not say to me, she is my sister? And didn't she also say, he is my brother? Pause. You know what that reminded me of? Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5 agreeing to lie. Agreeing to lie. This wasn't just Abraham now. Sarah's in on the act. He's my brother. Abimelech says, I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. And God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience, so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. He will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all yours will die. Early the next morning, Abimelech summoned all his officials, and when he told them all that had happened, they were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, What have you done to us? Same thing Pharaoh said. How have I wronged you that you have brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You have done things to me that should not be done. Abimelech asked Abraham, What was your reason for doing this? Abraham replied, I said to myself, There is surely no fear of God in this place. Whoa, wait a minute. There is surely no fear of God in this place, and here they are lying. Again, in this story, just like the previous one, who comes out more righteous? Abimelech. Abraham and Sarah, how embarrassing. They're being rebuked by this heathen king for their lack of integrity. I don't know if that's ever happened to you before, but it's happened to me. Since being a Christian, I got caught lying by a heathen. And he rebuked me. You're supposed to be a pastor? Why can't you tell the truth? And here Abraham's talking about, well, there's no fear of God in this place. So, she really is my sister. Oh, by still trying to justify it. The daughter of my father, though not of my mother, da 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 da. Thank God, God again intervened. This could have been a horrible situation. Remember, the son of promise is supposed to come through Sarah. Twice now, she's come this close to being defiled and disqualified from the whole plan because of Abraham's stupidity and his unbelief. 
In conclusion, here's the good news. You want the good news? God wasn't done with Abraham yet. God's not done with you yet, and He's not done with me yet. And I have hope today. Despite all my failings, all my waverings, all my stupid plans and folly and all the rest, I still have hope today based on Abraham's story. Because we finally come to Genesis 22 and God gives him the ultimate test. It actually uses those words. God tested Abraham. And he said, take your son, your only son whom you love, and offer him to me as a sacrifice. And in the record, there's no wavering. There's no arguing. There's no questioning. The very next morning, the Bible says early the next morning, Abraham gathers up Isaac and they head to Mount Moriah. Abraham's got the knife raised, ready to do what God told him to do. Ready to kill his own son. Beautiful picture of the cross, by the way. And an angel of the Lord arrests him and stops him from following through with the knife. And God says, now... I know. Now I know I can trust this man. You passed the test, Abraham. And the Bible says that in that act, several things happened. Abraham's faith became perfect. It became complete. And it says that he actually believed that even if he killed his son, God was going to raise him from the dead again. How amazing. Which brings us full circle to Hebrews 11 where we read about all these heroes. And then chapter 12 is really like a punctuation mark on all of chapter 11. And here's what we read in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, all the heroes in chapter 11, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes, not on Abraham, not on Noah, not on Moses. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. And I love this. The author and perfecter of our faith. You know what Jesus is doing with your faith and mine every day? He's perfecting it. It's not there yet. But He will not rest just as He would not rest with Abraham until He finally brought him to perfect, complete faith. Author and perfecter of our faith. God patiently waits. God patiently works. He meets us where we are. He's not going to leave us where we are. He works with the little that we have in the beginning, and He starts to supply what's lacking in our faith. Very quickly, I'm going to read four Scriptures, and then we're going to close. Luke 17, 5 and 6, The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. Now, if the apostles were praying like that, Maybe you and I need to also increase our faith. 
don't settle for where we are. Okay, we've done some silly things like Abraham, but I want to move on, don't you? I want to sound like the Abraham in Romans 4, full of faith, persuaded that God is going to do whatever He promised, never wavering, never doubting. I want to be like that. Luke 22, 31 and 32, Jesus speaking to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Oh, hallelujah. Jesus is at the right hand of majesty on high. He ever lives to make intercession for us. And I'm sure this is one of his main prayers for me. Lord, strengthen his faith. Don't let his faith fail. Even in this trial, even in this battle, even in this situation, don't let his faith fail. Jesus could have prayed differently. Simon, I'm going to pray for you and I'm going to rebuke all the devils and I'm going to make all your troubles go away. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. No. That's not what I'm going to do because that's not for your greater good. You need to go through stuff and you need to learn how to overcome by faith. So I'm going to pray that even in the trial, your faith doesn't fail. Mark 9, 23 and 24. If you can, Jesus said, Everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. I do believe. But I still got a mixture of stuff going on. Help me overcome my unbelief. 1 Thessalonians 3.10 Paul, writing to the church, said, Night and day, we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Supply what is lacking in your faith. So, maybe, like me, you still realize there are some areas where you're falling short, you're lacking, you haven't reached that perfect faith yet. I want to encourage you. God meets us where we are. He works with us where we are. But don't settle for where you are. Reach out. God, increase my faith. Don't let my faith fail. I believe, but help me overcome all my doubts and my fears and my unbelief. And whatever's lacking in my faith, fill it up so that in the end, you are glorified as both author and perfecter of my faith. Let's stand. I am becoming more and more convinced, not because of what I feel or what I see, but it must be because of what I believe. I am becoming more and more convinced that God is going to finish what He starts. He will finish what He starts. And when I read through the life of Abraham, with all of his ups and downs and all of his foibles and strange things that he did, God stayed with him, kept working with him, kept arranging circumstances to make sure in the end Abraham ended up where he was supposed to be. I believe that. I believe we're going to end up where we're supposed to be. And through the process, God doesn't give up. He doesn't quit. He is dedicated to finishing what He started in our lives. We should respond in kind and say, Lord, I'm dedicated to this process. Keep working. Keep dealing with me. Don't leave me alone until my faith 
is perfected. Father God, in the name of Jesus, we thank You today for these heroes of faith, men and women who have gone before us, and we can see Your grace and Your power working in their lives. But sometimes, Lord, we stumble because we think they were supermen or superwomen. They were just people like us. And God, You know how weak and frail our frame is. And Lord, we're not making excuses for sin. We want to lay aside every sin, every weight. We want You to perfect the faith that You have authored in our lives. And Lord, we thank You that You meet us where we are in that journey. And You keep encouraging us. You keep changing the circumstances in our lives to point us toward that final end. God, I pray that anything, any weight, any hindrance, any relationship that is holding us back and preventing us from the fulfillment of Your plan, Your purpose, and Your destiny, that there would be a parting from those things. There would be a laying aside, not only of every sin, but every weight, so we can run the race to the finish line. And Father, we thank You that we can keep our eyes fixed, focused on Jesus because He is the author and He is also...